Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for coming to this very special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I'm Deb Hastings, and I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education. And uh, again, we're really happy to see so many of you here, and I want to um, say a special thank you to the faculty from St. A's who are here. Thank you for making the trip up 89. And uh, I believe there's someone from UNH who's calling in, Dr. Harkless, so hello to you, and possibly from Colby Sawyer as well. So we're really happy to have everyone on board for this. Um, of course, I have to go through a few housekeeping announcements before we begin, so bear with me. Um, be, uh, just uh, some accreditation requirements. We need to ask you to be sure you've signed the attendance sheet so that uh, we do have a record of your attendance. And if you're watching remotely, uh, you must contact Judy Langhans, and that's Judith dot m as in may dot langhans l-a-n-g-h-a-n-s at the conclusion of the program so that we can record your attendance as well um, and if our remote learners have a question or comment you can send your question directly to judy via email um, she's monitoring that now and then she will share the um, the question with our speakers all of your evaluation forms will be sent to you electronically after the at the conclusion of this um, program and uh, you must be present for 80% of the program in order to earn your CE credit. Um, we do now have a new system in place that we're trialing, and your credit is tied to your evaluation, so you must complete the evaluation form in order to receive your CE credit. Um, and again, we do appreciate your feedback, so please be candid with us about um, whether or not you liked the program, what we could do better, what went well for you, because we do pay attention to that. Um, your contact hours will appear on your transcript in about two or three weeks. Uh, we want you to know that neither our speakers nor any, anyone on the planning committee for today's program has reported a relationship with a commercial entity, and no individuals refuse to disclose. And then finally, I'd like to remind you to sil silence your cell phones and pagers out of, uh, out of respect for our speakers. So at this time, I would like to present our... Um, Clinical Research Coordinator, Clinical Program Coordinator, Mary Jo Slattery, um, and we've asked her to introduce the members of our Summer Undergraduate Research Fellowship Program. Um, so I'm not even. I'm just going to turn it right over to you. And just for those of you who are just visiting, Mary Jo is going to be retiring in a couple of weeks. So this is her last Inbury celebration, and I just want to let you all know what a wonderful job she's done. So <laughs> Thank you all for coming. This is so great to see you here to share this experience. Um, as Deb has said, I've been, um, been fortunate enough to be working with these great students this summer, and so we're going to be presenting those experiences um, for you today. Let me just get myself oriented here. So our objective then is to talk about those experiences and talk about our unique program. It is really a one-of-a-kind program. When we first started this work, it was there was nothing out there in the country to kind of model after, and we've actually developed it here at Dartmouth, and so we're very proud of it. Our presenters today, we have four students who were selected from a panel of probably 15 applicants throughout the state, and they are... Um, really of the cream of the crop, and we're very pleased to have them here with us today. Courtney Fugusha from Colby Sawyer College, Michelle Constant from UNH, uh, Amy LaLancet from St. Anselm's College, and also from St. A's, uh, John Sullivan. 
I'll give you just a quick overview and then we'll dive into the fellows um, individual experiences. There'll be a time for reflections and then we'll have some time for question and discussion. So the Summer Undergraduate Research Fellowship Program in Nursing is also called the ISURF program or ISURF Nursing and the I in ISURF stands for Idea Network of Biological Research Excellence or INBRI. So a couple terms. So INBRI is what we refer to it commonly around Dartmouth, but it is a grant from NIH with the sole purpose of expanding the research infrastructure and capacity in the state and region. And so also in addition to increase in the part with the partner colleges that are connected to this grant, the frequency with which graduates engage in research in either graduate education or in their employment in the future. And it really dovetails nicely with the IOM, Institute of Medicine's report, The Future of Nursing, that talks about expanding the number of doctorates um, by 50% by 2020 and by increasing the capacity for nurses to be at the bedside but also be at the table and talking about evidence-based practice and research. So we feel like our program really does dovetail nicely with those national expectations. It's a 10-week program, and we've conceptualized it as the sort of the three roles that nurses might be involved in related to research. So the role of the nurse researcher, the role of the clinical trials nurse, research nurse, and application of research and evidence-based practice at the bedside. So evidence-based practice and quality improvement skills. Now you'll see as they present their projects that there's overlap in all of these competencies and, and um, experiences. Then we've had a lot of additional experiences that we've been able to bring in to take advantage of the Academic Medical Center and the college to augment the individual's experiences as well as the programmatic um, pieces. This is our fourth year and I've mentioned we've made modifications over the time by based on faculty and student um, evaluations. We've taken a lot of that into consideration and each year it's improved and I think it's become really quite a quite a nice program. It's got an integrated structure so students are matched with one research mentor and one evidence-based practice quality improvement mentor throughout the 10 weeks and then they have a one-week clinical trials immersion experience. And then our program, our small nursing program with four students is matched with a program that's at Dartmouth College, the ISURF program at Dartmouth College, which is for biomedical research. And so those undergraduate students and our students are working together um, on extracurricular activities, if you will, like GRE prep and an interdisciplinary journal club. So it really is creating this whole community of young scientists, which is really exciting. Then there's a student coordinator who is actually at Dartmouth, and she helps with the after work activities, again, sort of augmenting this whole community type of thing. So. It's a very well-rounded program. And I really couldn't um, thank all of the people that have made this program possible because it's just so, so huge. And there are so many people that have been putting their energies and commitment into making this work. So we have a group of evidence-based practice and research mentors. Many of them are here with us today. Uh, we have a lot of support from the Office of Professional Nursing for administrative and leadership support. The clinical trials research experience, we have numerous clinical research nurses who have given their time and effort to, and to um, train our, expose our students to the clinical role, this unique role, this something that doesn't happen in undergraduate nursing programs. And just acknowledge Katie Abraham, um, specifically as a trials nurse who um, had coordinated, who coordinated that whole experience for the nurses. And then we've had numerous guest faculty who taught either the research roundtables that we've had weekly or took them to special committees, 
um, to the CPHS, our IRB, various committees, they've all been really wonderful in helping along those lines. And then I couldn't really thank the folks from Dartmouth College enough because Ron Taylor is the PI of the um, original Inbury grant and Bob Maui behind him is the director of research training and they are both non-nurses who have been such advocates for nursing and this nursing program by coming to us four years ago and saying we're writing this huge statewide grant does nursing want to be involved and so since then we've had this incredibly rich partnership in bringing these two entities together and then I also would really like to thank uh, the Synergy program at Dartmouth, the Center for Clinical Translational Sciences, uh, a national award, um, and we have funding for the nursing uh, faculty of Dartmouth from that program. And I recognize Sheila Noon here in the audience, and thank you. So without further ado, I'd really like to introduce our first student, Courtney Fugusha from Colby Sawyer, who will tell her about her experiences. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Mary Jo. So my name is Courtney Fagusha, and I'm going to be a junior this fall at Colby Sawyer College, and I'd just like to tell you about my summer experience. So to begin, I started with a quality improvement project working with Ellen Flaherty on increasing advanced directives on the blue team, and that's a team based out of uh, general internal medicine. And so with this project, um, along with learning the steps and process of actually conducting a quality improvement project, I was able to do a literature review, um, attend some quality improvement project meetings that really focused on uh, doing product, project charters and um, attending blue team meetings where they discussed the actual uh, project. And so through this experience, I was able to learn the different components of advanced directives along with how important advanced directives actually are. And so with this project, it was determined that patients of 65 years of age and older with active MyDH accounts but no advanced directive on file were the targeted population. Um, and those people would receive a pre-visit message with some education about what advanced directives are um, with the hopes of actually completing an advanced directive at the visit. And so another great part of this summer is I was able to do nursing research again with Ellen Flaherty and Justin Montgomery. Um, and this was on evaluating a primary care interdisciplinary falls clinic. And so why falls? Falls are one of the leading causes of fatal and non-fatal injuries in older adults. And just in 2010 alone, there were over 21,000 deaths and over 2 million injuries just for falls. And so that is causing tons and tons of medical costs to increase, so over $30 billion just for falls. Um, and Dartmouth-Hitchcock decided to establish an interdisciplinary falls clinic in order to try and um, reduce these numbers. And so at the falls clinic, I was able to attend and shadow the different professionals to see what it's actually like. And so the team consists of a care manager, a nurse practitioner, and a physical therapist. And each of these professionals conducts their own type of assessment in order to tailor interventions specific to that um, patient. And so the care manager focuses more on the functional assessment and um, the environmental assessment, along with a slums test and a depression test. Um, the nurse practitioner will assess the patient on any history of risk factors with acute or chronic diseases, along with a physical assessment and some medication reviews. And the physical therapist focuses on balancing gait. And so patients that are seen at the clinic are usually through primary care or um, admitted through the emergency department, and they're screened positive for one of the three of the following, one or more. And they either have fallen two or more times in the past year, 
they have fallen at least once with an injury in the past year, or they have some type of self-reported or observed balance and walking difficulties. And so for this project, I was able to evaluate the impact of the Falls Clinic um, on the patient outcomes, and the patients were seen at the clinic from June 2013 to April, uh, April 2014. And in order to do this, um, it was a descriptive study, so I looked at chart reviews and conducted follow-up phone calls to interview patients and looked at their fall history, any fall-related injuries, um, what their perceived balance confidence was, and by doing an activity-specific balance confidence scale, I was able to calculate their confidence, um, and also looked at the recommended interventions and see and called to see had they been adhering to these recommendations. And what we found was pretty great. So before attending the clinic, there were 90% of participants that had fallen, and after the clinic, only 50% had fallen. So that was a great decrease to see. And also, we had a decrease in the number of injuries after the clinic, so from 56% to 33%. And also, we decided to look at what was the change in the number of falls after attending the clinic. And as you can see, the majority of them had uh, participants had decreased in their total number of falls after attending the clinic compared to the number of falls they had before attending the clinic. Um, this is just a chart to show you the type of recommended interventions that um, patients receive while attending the clinic. Um, they, don't, they can get any or all of these, but the majority of patients received a physical therapy referral. Um, but we also had things like vitamin D supplements, um, reduction of alcohol intake, and even um, some home therapy exercises. Um, and patients that actually adhered to the recommended interventions had the largest decrease in the falls. So as you can see here, um, the majority of patients actually had some positive outcomes from doing what, what they were told to do. So that was great to see. Um, and we did have some people increase in their falls, but there was only one patient who adhered. So, um, and looking at this, it's just an, a division of the different age groups that were seen at the clinic. So it was from 50 to 99. And the majority of patients were in the 70 to 89 year old group. And those people had the largest decrease in their number of falls, which is great to see because these patients are going to be old, they're frail, um, they could be on multiple medications. So we wanna try and target these people to make sure that they can um, have some safer, um, safer environments and some increased strength. Um, another thing that we looked at was their balance confidence, again, using the activity specific balance confidence scale. And we wanted to see what happened to their confidence after attending the clinic. And from the table, you can see that um, the majority of patients actually decreased in their confidence after attending the clinic. And so what we asked ourselves was, why would it decrease? Do you think it has to do with fallers versus non-fallers? So what we looked at in the, um, the graph is comparing those two groups, the fallers and the non-fallers, and what happened with their confidence. And there's really no um, relationship between the two. So, so in conclusion to this, um, it was seen that there are positive outcomes to attending the clinic. Um, there's a decrease totally in the number of uh, patients who fell and a decrease in the total number of falls, along with um, a decrease in fall-related injuries. Um, and the majority of patients that adhered to the recommended interventions had a decrease in their falls too. And there was no significant relationship between confidence and falls. Um, for the future, we look to do a comparative analysis of patients who have fallen versus have not fallen um, and look at their number of diagnoses, number of medications, um, what their cognition is, and relate that to their confidence and the number of falls. 
and even uh, also create a diary as an evaluation tool to give to the clinic attendees to take home um, and record any information about their falls so we can gain that data back and see what if there's any trends or anything. So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, one part of this project is the four students get to participate in some clinical trials and we get to learn about the role of the research nurse. And this was um, based out of the Cotton Center or the Cancer Center. And what we learned is the role of the research nurse, she does a variety of different things. And so one of the major things that the nurse does is identify potential participants for trials. And here you can go through inclusion and exclusion factors of the protocols to see if they could be a potential candidate for this. Um, another thing that uh, the research nurse does is make sure that the trials are following these protocols. They're extremely important to follow, especially when um, the drug might not be FDA approved yet. So you wanna make sure that it's um, benefiting the patient the way that the trial is supposed to be run. And it's also important to understand the regulations and relation, uh, related to the protection of the human subjects and also provide nursing care. All of these are very important. So through the clinical drug trials, um, there's three different phases and each phase has its specific characteristic about each. And with the phase one trials, the importance is evaluating drug safety. And with this, it's the trial tries to determine what the maximum tolerated dose is, uh, determine what are the serious side effects and adverse effects of this trial. And it's usually in a small sample size of participants. Once it passes through phase one, it enters phase two of the trials. And this is looking more at the effectiveness of the drug for a specific disease. And for all of our experiences, it was the cancer, a specific type of cancer. And so you're still continuing to evaluate safety and also looking at side effects, um, but this is more short-term short side effects as well. And the sample size is getting a little larger. And finally, with phase three, this is looking at randomized control trials and it's looking to compare the drug of interest to the standard of care. And this is usually done with a placebo, um, with the standard of care or the actual test drug with the standard of care. Um, and this is seen in a much larger sample size. So what we got to do in order to learn all these great experience, uh, great things are by attending the tumor board. So we all got to attend different types of tumor boards, whether it was GI or lung. Um, and then we also were able to conduct our own pre-screening for po potential patients. Um, so we got to look through the protocol protocols to see inclusion and exclusion factors to see um, if this patient could be a potential candidate. Um, we were also able to observe an informed consent process to see how it's really more of a conversation in order to understand what's going on in this trial. You don't want to just give the participants the 30 or more page document and expect them to understand everything. Um, and we also got to shadow investigational pharmacy as a way to see what goes on behind, um, behind the doors um, of all the trial drugs. Along with this, I was able to take part in numerous shadowing experiences. One of the most influential for me was going on the following a community health nurse, Terry Fuller, and she brought me to some of her home visits to see what aging in the community actually looks like. Um, and then along with those, there were a variety of other experiences I got to partake in this summer that I would never have been able to do if it weren't for this program. So I would just like to, um, thank all this, um, this large list of people along with the list that Mary Jo mentioned before, but specifically Ellen Flaherty and Justin Montgomery. Um, they've been some great mentors this whole summer, so I wouldn't be able to uh, be here if it weren't for them. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Michelle Constance.
Thank you, Courtney. So I'm Michelle Constant. I will be a senior at the University of New Hampshire this coming fall. My first project, I worked with Bridget Logan on the experience of teaching and learning clean intermittent catheterization to parents of newborns with spina bifida. So spina bifida is a neural tube defect which affects approximately 1,500 babies each year in the U.S. Um, specifically to the urologic system, which we focus on, it causes abnormal innervation to the bladder, which then um, can cause inability to voluntarily empty their bladder. They don't get that urge to void that other people feel. Um, this can lead to urinary retention, which further may cause infection and renal complications. It's incredibly important that we note this because renal failure is a leading cause of death for these patients, so we need to do whatever we can to avoid this. How this is achieved is by using clean intermittent catheterization for these parents, um, for these patients. And in the infant period, this may begin. So that's when you have to teach parents how to perform this procedure on their children. This can be very difficult. This is a difficult procedure for nurses to do sometimes on these little babies. So for parents to learn this with maybe no medical background, it's really difficult. It can be traumatizing to have to do this for their child. So we wanted to focus on how we can make this experience easier for our parents. So I assessed the current practice, saw what was actually being done at DHMC to teach these parents CIC. Um, we also wanted to gain a better understanding of the barriers and challenges related to this teaching and examine the demographic data and see who we're actually treating at our spina bifida clinic. So I did this by looking in care notes in the patient's electronic medical record. We had a sample size of 30 patients, and if we could find their mother's um, names as well, we looked into their electronic medical record as well. I performed a descriptive analysis where we assess the current practice, look at demographics, and try to find out if we could see any trends in this teaching. And this was approved by the Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects. So first I looked at the education that was being done. I found that um, educational materials, methods, and content aren't necessarily found um, in the documentation of this teaching. Nurses just aren't putting this in the patient's chart, so that was a barrier to our study. We just couldn't find out what was being done there. But I could find in most cases where it was being taught. And if you can combine the inpatient and outpatient um, locations, those are both being taken place in the hospital, which is interesting to note because from a literature review I performed prior to this, we found that parents um, and children, when they have to learn, enjoy being taught in the home setting rather than in a hospital setting. It's more private, they're more comfortable there. So if we think about that, if you go to the role of the educator, it's usually being performed by nurses, but if we're thinking about maybe transferring it over to the home setting, we might have to connect more with the VNA services, which is only being used 6% of the time in our patients. I then looked at when CIC is recommended for these patients. We compared it by lesion type and lesion level. The severity of spina bifida will depend on each of these things. We wanted to compare it throughout that way. Um, if you look at this top chart here, we have the, this color is difficult, I apologize. Um, meningocele are shown in the gray, and that's this bar and this bar here. And myelomeningocele are shown in red, and lipomyelomeningocele are shown in green. Um, myelomeningocele is the most severe form, and as you can see, it is recommended all across these years. It may be recommended at birth, maybe even two years or older, and maybe not at all. So this is difficult for parents to see. Um, they kind of want an answer when it comes to this process. If you tell them that it's not recommended at birth, then they might get in their head that their child isn't going to need CIC in the future. So as nurses, we need to um, know that it may still be recommended, maybe even two years of um, age and older. So you do have to keep reminding parents that no, it's not recommended now. 
but it may be in the future so that they can kind of prepare for this and cope with this idea better. Um, and as you can see with the meningus seals and mycelial meningus seals, they're probably not going to require CIC, which is also uh, very important to know. We can kind of give parents an idea um, whether or not their baby will require it based on the type of lesion they have. We also looked at where the lesion occurs on the spine. So if you come down to this bottom chart, you see um, if you combine the pink and blue bars here, these um, are lesions above L3 in total. And every single one of our patients with lesions above, um, above L3 began within the first year of life. This is really great to be able to tell parents as well. If we can tell them this ahead of time, they can start coping with that and start preparing for this recommendation so that when it does get recommended, um, possibly, they'll be ready for it and they may be able to cope with that idea better and that may ensure that they do follow it. But again, with our lesions below L3, it happens all the time, so that's those constant reminders that it's not recommended now, but it may be in the future. I also looked at some demographic data. Um, I found that a little over half of our babies are born at DHMC, but they're also being born all over the place. Um, and from our moms, we saw their ages are 18 years to 43 years when they're having their children. So this is a wide range, and it's important to keep in mind when um, doing this teaching for our mothers. And also, more than 60% um, have more than one child, and about two-thirds are traveling over an hour to get to DHMC. So when you're planning these patients' appointments and thinking about other stressful factors in these moms' life, these are good to note. So some recommendations I have for the clinic would be to provide some anticipatory guidance. If we can do this um, by maybe some CIC education in the infancy period and also prenatal education, then this could help enhance um, their coping abilities and have them prepare for this recommendation. If they're thinking about it ahead of time, it may be able to ensure that they will follow the recommendation. Um, some future research, we would like to do a qualitative study where we interview parents, find out uh, what helps them to cope with this recommendation, and also their preferences regarding um, educational methods and locations and, um, and the roles of the educator to possibly standardize teaching elements and make sure that we're giving the customer what they want so that hopefully they will ensure, uh, it will ensure that they follow these recommendations. So that was my first project I worked on. My next project was with Bridget Mudge, and we looked at improving central line associated bloodstream infections in the PICU and pediatric units. So um, the Hospital Enterprise Network bundle for central line care was analyzed and a gap analysis was performed. We determined missing elements from our standards of care to the HEN bundle and performed a literature review regarding implementation of practices we were missing. I also um, did daily audit data collection on central line care on both of these units and met with the CLABZ team regularly to determine the process for implementing these new practices. So what we were missing, um, we only had one standard element that we were missing, which was an insertion checklist which we developed. And there was a couple of missing recommended elements as well, but we focused mainly on daily chlorhexidine baths, but this would only be implemented on the pediatric intensive care unit because that's the only unit where research has been performed thus far. So here's an example of my insertion checklist, and I would just like to note that the importance in the bundle was to stress staff empowerment to speak up for any breach of sterility. We really want to ensure there's a comfortable environment for all staff members and they will feel comfortable speaking up if this occurs. And chlorhexidine baths is the next thing we focused on. Um, these are really great. They're just cloths that you use for each part of the body. They're for drug-resistant bacteria, broad spectrum, easy to use, but um, a good amount of education for the staff as well as the family. 
So I've been um, reviewing literature and contacting manufacturers to kind of gather a bunch of information to um, provide education for staff and family. So this is just some of the things I collected that we could use <laughs> um, for my daily audit data. I did, I looked at standard care, tubing and dressing changes, as well as standard access. And I found a couple things um, to note. One was documentation of this, um, of the necessity of having the central line in. There's only a place for um, pick lines in EDH, and it's just asking if the discussion of necessity of this line is occurring. Um, well, they're not necessarily documenting this at all, so we're wondering, should this even be an EDH whatsoever? Because the discussion is occurring, it's just not being documented. I also noticed that dressings uh, were not necessarily being reinforced when they're not completely occlusive. It might just be me coming at the wrong time before the nurse sees it or um, something in the fact, but it is important to note. And also I found that standard access devices are not necessarily being used properly, either underuse or overuse. Uh, staff just doesn't have that exact education on it. So I came up with this form to give to um, staff and hang up in the med room, which just shows when you want to use it, exactly how you want to use it, and some tips to really make it easier for nurses. So my recommendations would be to implement the insertion checklist and give education for providers. Also begin the chlorhexidine bath education for nurses once we compile all of our education elements and possibly identify a nurse leader on the PD and PICU to just keep reinforcing these um, prevention efforts. So I got a slew of other experiences thanks to this program and I just th can't thank Andrea and Iser for enough for all I've gotten to do this summer. I also want to make a special thank you to Bridget Logan and Bridget Mudge. You guys have been absolutely incredible, and I really can't thank you enough. This summer has been so great, thanks to you both. Um, also, the entire Spina Bifida team and the staff nurses on PD and PICU have been so helpful throughout this process, and really great just working with me. And Mary Jo Slattery, thank you so much. I'm really happy we got to work with you before you leave. So thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> and without further ado, let me... Thank you all for coming. It's very exciting to see you all. My name is Amy Lalancet, and I will be a senior in the fall at St. Anselm College. So, my first project was improving the safety of IV medications to infants in the intensive care nursery. I worked with Karen McCoy on this project. She is a green belt leading this yellow belts in the DMAIC process to look at IV medications. So, neonates are particularly vulnerable and at risk to harm from medication errors. This is largely due to the fact that they are nonverbal patients. They have small size, weight changes are frequent, and the use of medications in this population are often used off-label. Um, my experience included a literature review to look at medication errors specific to neonates. I also focused on barcoding. Barcoding is being implemented on this unit in September. Therefore, I created an educational poster for the staff. Um, I also received my yellow belt training to be able to work on this project and understand the DMAIC process a little better. As part of this process, we wanted to map the flow of IV medication administration from ordering to the actual point where we administer the med. So I observed this from the role of the nurse as well as the role of the provider. I also interviewed family. Family is a consumer of this process. Their babies are the ones receiving this medication, and it's important to kind of see what they feel, what their experiences are, and what they know about this process. So my next project with Karen was central line infections in the neonatal population. We wanted to assess current practice and determine potential room for improvement. As part of this project, I performed a literature review 
in order to look at current bundle elements and evidence-based practice. I also developed a pick dressing and IV line labeling audit tool and performed those audits. I sat in on the NCIS infection meetings on this unit and was able to present my findings to them. I also created a poster for the staff with our audit findings and current evidence-based practice. So my next project was Parents' Perspectives of Infant Safe Sleep Recommendations. I worked with Vicki Flanagan on this project. The purpose of our project was to determine in-hospital compliance with American Academy of Pediatrics Safe Sleep Recommendations. We did this through nighttime auditing. We also wanted to describe parents' understanding of these recommendations prior to discharge from the birthing pavilion, so we sat down with parents and interviewed them. The third part of this project was to determine staff perspectives of these recommendations and their role in safe sleep education, so we sent out an anonymous survey for the staff. As a side note, this study was approved by the IRB. So my experience included the opportunity to develop a staff survey as well as collect data. I got to conduct a lot of the interviews with parents. It was great to meet all of them. They all have such interesting things to say. I was able to present my findings to unit management as well as staff. I also had the opportunity to present my findings to the New Hampshire State Seward Committee in Concord, and this was my Embry Conference poster presentation. So why safe sleep? Why are we so interested in this? The American Academy of Pediatrics revised their guidelines in 2011 to focus on a safe sleep environment. Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, also known as SIDS, is a subset of Sudden and Unexpected Infant Death, or SUID. Um, SIDS rates have been dropping. They've been dropping since the early 1990s in the following of the Back to Sleep campaign, which really emphasized to parents to put their baby to sleep on their back on a firm, flat surface. However, sewage rates are increasing. Sewage encompasses deaths such as deaths from overlaying suffocation, strangulation, and those rates are on the rise. They've quadrupled in the past two decades. It's also the number one cause of infant death in the state of New Hampshire. In 2013, it was made up 17% of natural deaths. So, the first part of this project focused on audits to see really what's happening in our hospital setting. We looked at 73 mothers and babies. Of those 73, 52 were identified as awake. Um, five were identified as drowsy and 16 as sleeping. And we concluded that over half of moms identified as sleeping were not in compliance with AAP safe sleep recommendations. When we looked at what was happening, we concluded that non-compliance was due to co-sleeping or the infant was found in the adult bed with the mother. When we further broke this down, we looked at where are these babies when they're in bed with mom. We found that three were on their side, one was prone and one was even breastfeeding. This is scary to find in a hospital setting and we wanna know what we can do to help parents prevent some of these things. Next, we sat down with parents. We sat down with 16 parents. These were recorded, transcribed and categorized for themes. We wanted to know really what prenatal knowledge they had, where they were learning it, and determine what they learned upon delivery and their perspectives and their feelings on all of these recommendations. So what did we discover? We discovered that prenatal discussion with a provider is rare. Often, um, parents gain their knowledge from other parents or their own parents. This creates a lot of confusion, especially when parents have babies before 2011 and the revision of these guidelines. Um, parents often know, often being confused about pacifiers. They want to, one, establish breastfeeding, and two, make sure that their baby is sleeping safely. So what can we tell parents to really clarify this guideline? Um, we also discovered that swaddling is a big issue. Parents don't understand necessarily. They're learning six different ways to swaddle, and the poor dads, you always hear them. I learned six ways to swaddle, and I don't know one of them. It's also not an AAP recommendation right now. Um, 
Next, we looked at co-sleeping. We discovered that co-sleeping often happens by accident. Um, one dad states, I wasn't even tired, and the next thing I knew, the nurse was waking me up, and the baby was between me and the back of the couch. These are the kind of parents we want to help. This is scary for a new parent to have this happen. They accidentally put their baby in danger. This is scary for the nurse as well to come in and find parents like this. So what can we do as healthcare providers to minimize these risks? We also discovered from these interviews that veteran parents often don't recall many of these recommendations from their first child. This really shows us that as healthcare providers, we need to be providing consistent education, whether it's their first baby or their fourth. We need to go over these recommendations again. Um, parents also told us that often they don't understand the rationale behind some of these recommendations, especially supine sleep. We see one mom stated, after feeding him, I had him sleep with his head to the side because I was afraid he would spit up and choke. Anatomically, we know that the trachea sits above the esophagus when the baby is on their back, and they're actually less likely to aspirate. But do parents know this? Should we be using a picture such as this to really show parents this is why we're recommending supine sleep? The third part of this project was the staff survey. 35% of Birthing Pavilion staff answered this anonymous survey, and it was intended to capture their perspectives as well as their role in education. So we asked staff, have you received adequate training regarding these recommendations? And we concluded that overwhelmingly staff felt they had received adequate training. It is important to note that as of right now, there is no formal education on these recommendations on the Birthing Pavilion. We also asked them, where do you routinely document safe sleep in EDH, or the electronic medical record? One nurse said, I don't think I've been documenting it, and as we see from the pie chart, it's all over the board. EDH is not necessarily user-friendly, and we really need a consistent way to document this education, for one, because it's an important thing to make sure nurses are educating our patients on, and two, for liability reasons. We also asked staff, in your opinion, what are the key components of safe sleep recommendations? We saw that they identified four out of the six inpatient recommendations, but they also identified swaddling, which, as I said before, is not a current AAP recommendation. This really showed us that staff may benefit from formal education on these safe sleep recommendations. So the clinical implications of this study, we really discovered that the hospital provides essential education. We need to be providing consistent messaging and modeling of these recommendations because oftentimes the nurse is the first healthcare provider to bring up these recommendations with these parents. We also discovered that utilizing multiple resources during education may improve safe sleep practices. Parents noted in our interviews and staff noted on their surveys that they would like additional resources to educate parents. There are many, many options for this, some of which may be a flyer, a book, a poster, or even a onesie that says, this side up while sleeping and list the guidelines on the back. <laughs> So in conclusion, I recommend from this project formal education. This is at this time being formally reviewed and will be implemented on the birthing pavilion as well as PD. Um, we also recommend developing a multidisciplinary committee, including parents. Parents are the ones that are consuming this information, so what do they want? How are they going to best learn? We want to ask them. We also recommend increasing visual aids and collaborating with lactation. Lactation nurses can help us provide a consistent and safe message regarding pacifiers. We would also like to collaborate with prenatal care in order to kind of implement this education sooner. Um, I had so many experiences in this program and they were all so great. I'm so thankful for Embree and ISER for all of these opportunities, everything from clinical trials to shadowing to great professional opportunities like presenting at the New Hampshire Seway um, Committee meeting. It was all fantastic. Um, special thanks to Vicki and Karen for being fantastic mentors. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed everything I have done this summer. And Mary Jo, we couldn't have done this program without you. We will miss you.
And without further ado, I would like to introduce John Sullivan. Hello everyone, my name is John Sullivan and I am a senior nursing major at St. Anselm College and I'm going to be presenting my experience thus far at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center this summer. So I had two projects this summer that I worked on, my chemotherapy personal protective equipment project and my MASMO project. So I'll jump right into my chemotherapy project that I worked on with Susan Stacio, which is over there. Um, and the formal name is Nurses Utilization of Personal Protective Equipment while administering chemotherapy. So a little bit of background behind this project. We all know that chemotherapy is, uh, has serious side effects if we're exposed to it unintentionally. And that's why nurses wear personal protective equipment in order to reduce this accidental ex exposure. And so this project really started because nurses were pointing out inconsistencies between our policy and what they were learning from their chemotherapy biotherapy course that they have to take before they administer chemotherapy. So the purpose of this project was to identify the newest recommended guidelines and to compare those guidelines to DHMC's policy, and then to assess the current nursing practice related to PPE effectively. And so we started off by doing a comprehensive literature review. We looked at CINAHL and PubMed, and we looked at articles, but most of them were um, referencing government organizations and specialty organizations. And so we just went directly to the source and looked at what they were saying about this. And um, we developed our PPE observation tool based on the ONS guidelines, which is what our nurses are learning here at this hospital. We distributed it to oncology nurses, safety professionals, and research specialists and revised it. And then we piloted it again and revised it um, again. And then we pilot tested the audit process. And so initially we were trying to do it inconspicuously in the corner and the first time that I did it, um, I, was I was looking at this nurse and she was doing everything wrong. She had no gloves on while she was administering the chemotherapy and I was like, what is wrong with this? Uh, I, thought, I thought to myself, I was like, this is a bigger problem than I thought. Um, but she was actually administering just normal saline, so <laughs> I was like, oh geez. <laughs> Um, so when I went to ask her, she was like, oh, I just administered normal saline. And so I thought, well, I need to figure out a better process to do this. Um, so what I did was I hung out in the med room and I just asked the nurses if I could watch them while administering chemotherapy and I was very open to them. And that way I was very non-threatening and I was able to effectively observe the chemotherapy administration and get all the information that I needed. And then we also investigated a response to a chemotherapy spill. And this is my, um, my final personal protective observation list. So the results. So we observed three different locations and four units. Um, and we had 20 observations in all. And the RN's comments related to PPE were collected as well. And our conclusions were that um, DHMC's policy is deficient and outdated. Um, and we found that expert feedback and pilot testing are important components to creating a um, comprehensive audit form. And then we also found that there was an inconsistency between our policy and the ONS guidelines, which is what our nurses are taught, and that the majority of the time the nurses were following our policy, but the inconsistency between our policy and what, they're, what they've been taught um, resulted in variations among different locations. 
Um, and so because, and then we also looked at the, uh, the chemotherapy spills and we found that because they're so rare here, um, the nurses do not have regu regular opportunities to practice these clinic protocols. And so our recommendations were to revise our policy so that it, it's in accordance with what we're teaching our nurses and to develop a simulation-based education for handling chemotherapy spills, um, and then provide education about PPE and handling spills across um, the DHMC campuses, so to ensure um, consistent practice amongst every location. And now I'm gonna move into my Massimo project that I worked on with Karen Secor, who's sitting right there. Um, and its formal name is Evaluation of Continuous Surveillance Monitoring Guideline for epilepsy patients in an inpatient epilepsy monitoring unit. And so some background about this, um, Dartmouth-Hitchcock contains an epilepsy monitoring unit here, and its goal is to provoke seizures to get a better understanding of where the seizures occurring in the brain, what type of seizure um, they're having, and how to best treat the patient. And so this provocation of seizures elicits extensive safety concerns. And um, the goal of the EMU is to monitor them, but we also want to maintain their safety, and that's extremely important to us. And so there's two monitoring devices with alarms on the unit. There's the CZAC monitoring unit, which uses electroencephalography to monitor brainwave activity. And if there's 20 abnormal brainwaves within 30 seconds, then uh, an alarm will be elicited. Or if there's a, brainwave, a normal brainwave lasting five seconds or longer, then an alarm will be elicited. Um, and then there's the Massimo Patient Safety Net System, which is the one we're focusing on. And this uses continuous pulse oximetry, um, and it has parameters on it. So if the patient go outside those parameters, then an alarm will go off. And what we were looking at was the new parameters that we put on it, which were patient-specific. So the purpose of this project was to see if the patient-specific parameters shorten nurse response time to the patients having seizures. We also wanted to see what the relationship between the CZAC alarm was and the Massimo system. And we wanted to see if the administration of oxygen impacts patients return to baseline because most of the time nurses who are administering oxygen didn't have any reason behind it. It was mostly just anecdotal. Um, and then we wanted to see how the heart rate and oxygen saturation relate to the specific seizure types. So our methods, it was a descriptive study design. We looked at um, archive surveillance videos, electronic medical records, and the second-by-second -second Massimo data. And I just want to point out that the study was approved by the IRB. And so our results, we had 33 patients and 50 total videos. And our mean age was around 41, but we had a good, we had a good range of um, people. And our for our first objective, um, we wanted to see if the if the time was shortened for the new um, parameters. And we found that there were 12 instances that occurred where the Massimo was the only alarm that was triggered. And the nurse response time to the Massimo was very prompt. Um, but we only had seven instances that existed where the Massimo alarm went off first. So we could only use those instances to see if the parameters were, uh, were effective. And only of those seven instances, two patients had the parameters changed to the new guidelines, so the sample size was too small to make any conclusion. So that's one of our further recommendations to really look into this aspect. But we did find some intriguing results um, when we looked at our second objective, which alarm was better, the Massimo alarm or the CZAC alarm in detecting seizures onsets. 
and we found that the Massimo alarm took a much longer time to detect the seizure onsets than the CZAC alarm. Um, and there's a reason for that. As you can see on this chart here, um, the heart rate spike and desaturation that we typically see with seizure patients when they're going through a seizure doesn't happen until the end of the seizure. So the Massimo alarm wasn't going off towards the end of the seizure, whereas the seizure alarm was going off much quicker. And for our third objective, we looked at oxygen saturation related to oxygen therapy. And we found that patients who were given oxygen after their um, seizure returned back to baseline around a minute and two seconds quicker than those who didn't get oxygen. And then lastly, relating um, heart rate to specific seizure types, we found that uh, for secondarily generalized seizures, the heart rate didn't return back to baseline for around an hour. Whereas in complex partial seizures, which is a much le a less severe seizure, the um, heart rate returned to baseline within minutes. So, and then this, these are just case studies, and then we did an average of our whole results, um, and we found that secondarily generalized seizures have a much longer return to baseline than the other seizures that we looked at in this study. And so our conclusions were that nurse response time to the Massimo alarm was prompt, uh, the sample size, but the sample size was too small to determine the impact of the guideline change. So that's one of our further recommendations when we move on with this study. We also found that sometimes the Massimo system was the only alarm that, was alert, that alerted the nurse to the patient's room and that the MASMO system was not as effective as the seizure alarm in detecting seizure onsets when both of them went off. Because the heart rate spike typically did not occur until the seizures end. Um, and then we found that oxygen therapy for patients having seizures brings their O2 saturation back to baseline much more quickly than when oxygen therapy wasn't given. Um, and then patients' heart rates during secondarily generalized seizures on average did not return to baseline for approximately one hour. And so some additional experiences that I um, had at DHMC this summer were I got to go to the OR and see a brain surgery, which is really, really cool. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I was gonna be able to do that when I came here, so I was really pleased with that. Um, and then I got to learn how to read an EEG for my EEG techs um, and observed isotope injections, shadowed a bunch of different people, and I also was involved in another project, um, a yellow bubble training project. And so I'd like to acknowledge all of these people. Um, there was a laundry list of people who made this experience so much um, fun for me. But um, I just want to acknowledge Susan DeStacio and Karen Secor for being such great mentors. And um, a special thank you to Mary Jo Slatery, who we wouldn't be here right now without her. So. And I would like to invite my peers back up for reflections. And so um, before this process began, I didn't really know how much um, of an impact research has on nursing. And I didn't really realize it was such a big part of nursing before I uh, started this um, experience, I guess. And so after this experience, I really am thinking about getting into this in my future careers. And I can thank Susan DeStacio and Karen for that because they've taught me so much and gave me such a wealth of knowledge throughout this whole experience. So thank you both for everything.
And before this summer, I didn't really have quite an understanding of how big a um, portion research plays in the nursing role. Um, after this, I can see the extreme relevance and importance of implementing new research from working on evidence-based practice and quality improvement to generating new research ideas. Um, it's really just spiked an interest in me that I didn't know was there. So I can't thank my mentors enough for this whole experience and really just everything you guys have done for me. Um, before the summer, I don't think I realized the opportunities within nursing or within nursing research has really inspired me to want to apply evidence-based research at the bedside and get my DMP. Um, just going through nursing school, they, teachers make such a large um, stress on how important evidence-based practice is for your um, actual profession. So actually being able to get into um, this program this summer and see how important it is and apply some of it to um, the care that's given to patients and then the way that um, patients are responding to that type of care was great to see as well. So um, with that being said, I'd like to open the floor for questions. Yeah. Um, we had hemosphil as our competency last, last year, so we have that that I did with all the staff, mm -hmm. and we did it through simulation, so um, it was just interesting that that's what you found that you needed to work on too. Yeah. So there may be pockets of that information elsewhere, so I only learned about that until you presented it just now, so thanks, John. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Questions? <laughs> Other questions? Comments? <laughs> so uh, first, I just want to say thank you uh, for all that you've done for sharing your reflections and experiences. And, and I hope you understand the significant impact that you've had on nursing practice here just in this 10-week period. You know, if you sit here and you just listen to the work that you've done in this 10-week period uh, and some of the outcomes that you've developed because of that, I, I hope that you understand that significant impact that you've had and I um, want to thank you for that, for that work, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a question from the, as a basic scientist, so <clears throat> what did you get, what did you get out of interacting with those basic scientists all summer and was that unexpected? <laughs> <laughs> on the professional side. It's just so different. They're looking at cells and tissues and just so specific, like one protein and one gene and I don't even really understand it all. But it's just really different comparing it to applying to real people and it's just much different scales but it was interesting to see how they can apply their research starting at such a small molecular level to then how we're applying it from a human level. I think that's valuable to keep trying to do to bridge that gap. I think so. I think it's I think helpful for um, both sides uh -huh. of it because they can see that how nursing research applies as well, looking at the whole human compared to them maybe thinking about one little disease and one little cell and it's just really different. <laughs> uh, that's particularly because I think one of the students working at the bench level this, this summer worked on cancer cells, mm -hmm. cancer treatments, and here you guys had experience in clinical trials that way. So it's 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 rare, I think, we give people within a ten week span an attempt to bridge that. And the question is whether that's you know, superhumanly possible or whether that's <laughs> valuable in terms of just how you view what you're doing. Yeah, I definitely think it's valuable. Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any question? 
around because I knew I'd forget. <laughs> um, if you had any sense of why there was a decrease in confidence in Paul's education? Um, during the interviews, a lot of patients had mentioned that they are more aware now of the type of risks that are actually out there. And so um, going off of that, I guess you could say <coughs> they're giving them uh, or conducting all these assessments and actually picking out certain things that they should work on. So maybe they're, they're being more aware of what um, type of things could injure them if they were to, um, like for physical therapy, if they don't exercise or do the exercise, they could be weak and then fall again. So something like that. I, I just have to say I'm so impressed with all of you. Um, you will be and already are accredited professionals, so I really, really thank you for doing the fine work you've done. So. Thank, you. thank you so much. So I just have to add that I, I probably talked to most of them about something and how they could help people. <laughs> so it's like, even the geriatric work. Um, Amy's been over helping with uh, safe sleep on pediatrics, so it's, I have to thank you guys all for all your work. And they always would say, okay, let's try it. <laughs> Can't say no to much. No <laughs> I, I just want to applaud you for all the work that you guys do. It's, and being a practitioner and a clinician, having so much to do on my, you know, our regular jobs to have you all help us with these projects is just great. Thank you so much. And thank you. Karen is nice enough to let us into her home for the first week. <laughs> she's so loving. She's a great mom for that week. I really appreciate it. Amazing cocktail. Amazing cocktail. I wanted to uh, almost kind of a little bit of a, a segue off of what you said, Bob. I think one of the best things that I see out of you guys is that you know we're constantly having to figure out this 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 bridge from gap from like from bench to bedside and not bench to bookshelf that we actually take a lot of the research that we have and integrate it into the real practice and how it affects people's lives and all of you guys have done a fantastic job in demonstrating that across um, I think that if I were to ask a question of you guys because why not <laughs> if you guys were to think about as you get ready to enter into your career what sort of tools do you think, because you went out and did a lot of shadow experiences, so you also have an appreciation for how tough it is in a clinical environment to consistently go back and do this. So what sort of skills do you think you guys have picked up to make it so that when you get into clinical practice, you'll be able to go back and appreciate the evidence and then try to build on that body of knowledge? What do you think you need to do in order to pull that off? I think you need to be super dedicated to your work, and whether it's going in and to talk to a night shift that at night or whether it's to follow the nurse around and say could you please fill out my audit tool one more time <laughs> it's kind of that really always pushing to kind of be heard I think staying curious like little kids are always asking why always ask why you're doing something what's the reason for doing it and is there ways to improve what you're doing we don't really realize that or think about like why exactly practice is the way it is until we came into this research role and had to figure it out. So I think staying curious is definitely important there. I think like also questioning the standard practice that, that we're taught in schools and seeing why is this why is this the standard? Why can't is there a better way of doing this too? So I think I'll definitely use that when we go out of the world next year. <laughs> Especially if you're doing something the same way every day. Um, and wonder why is this the way that we do something is there again a better way to do it that's more efficient and um, more patient-centered as well so. 
We have one question from um, Destiny Brady, who's an instructor in critical care at St. Anselm. And she would like uh, to ask you if you got to choose which project you worked on or were they assigned, and if you chose them, how did you choose your assignment? Well, I just, I told Mary Jo what I liked, and she pretty much matched me with, like, she's like the matchmaker. She <laughs> matched me with, like, the perfect mentor, so, I mean, I... I mean, she's awesome, so. Yeah, that's the same way. I told her I wanted to do pediatrics, and she got me on PICU, PD, inpatient, and PD outpatient, so can't really do better than that. Yeah, I mean, I just said I wanted a challenge, and I haven't actually had a maternity rotation, so this was certainly a challenge and kind of a fun way to really be immersed in something new that I haven't seen yet. Yeah, and I was also interested in doing geriatrics, so when I um, came to her, I was telling her I'd be interested in doing something with, with that area, so. Well, as a mentor, uh, there's work that we're constantly doing. So I gave you guys, um, Michelle, a little bit of wiggle room to pick which one she wanted to work on. I think that, Logan, you probably, your project was picked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your project, you, you knew what your project was, yeah. And mentors are always flexible. I came in with Karen doing central line stuff and jumped onto a medication project. So, I mean, there are lots of opportunities, and they're always willing to let you jump onto whatever they're doing. Karen, I would just like to thank all of you for your contributions. You know, we look so forward to you all coming here in the summer, and I'm so very sorry to see you leave. What you're able to accomplish in a couple months is amazing and so incredibly helpful to us as we go forward. So thank you, all of you. You are just such a wonderful addition to the nursing profession. So we're looking forward to you all. Thank you. I just had two quick follow-up statements just for the room to now be aware of. And, and one is... Um, the INBRAE program, the NIH-funded program with, with all of our participating schools, we have a state meeting every year, and we had that August 3rd and 4th. Um, <clears throat> we have almost 200 people there. A lot of basic scientists, a lot of benchtop scientists, a lot of posters and so on, and these guys were right there in the mix, and they represented this group and what they were doing extraordinarily well. I think they were among the best prepared. They were very good at explaining their work. They did a great job. Their posters, and I think that's something, you know, when we talk about how we're training them, they're very good, they're getting very good at explaining the importance of this kind of research and work to the other to the other scientific community. That's something that's important for them to realize and to recognize. And these guys did a great job. Um, so I want to thank you guys for that. I mean, they were they were up there standing there with the people working on fruit flies and <laughs> squishy things and everything else. And they did a great job. And the second thing I, I want to make sure you appreciate is Usually you, get a, you have a task or a job, and if you're partnered with somebody, that's great if your partner does their 50% or does their share. And you have to realize with Mary Jo, she was partnered with Bob Maui and Ron Taylor, who do absolutely nothing, and were essentially pretty useless in this. So the 50-50 breakdown didn't occur at all. So when you really look at everything that's been accomplished in the program, stuff, it's right there, over there. So I think we have to really, really make sure you, you recognize Mary Jo for everything she does with pretty passive partners.